Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, we, we don't often draw attention to them, but I was moved this morning to want to thank uh, the team that leads us in worship each week. Uh, they're so faithful to do that. And I was just very grateful for the songs that we sang uh, and the way that they led us to stir our affections for our Lord before coming to his words. So thank you, brothers and sisters who do that for us. Let me invite you to join me in your Bibles in John chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 16 this morning. In just a moment, we'll read verses 16 to 25. And we ended last week noticing the sheer enormity of the sign that Jesus performed at the start of this chapter when he fed the 5,000. It was the kind of event that would lead a group of Galileans to think themselves quite ready to rebel against the great Roman Empire right then and there, to declare him king and to just, let's do this thing. It had that kind of effect on this group that saw the power that Jesus put on display. What we see this morning are the events that took place immediately after that. And that very night, in fact, and the following morning. And what we're going to see, if you're looking at the verses, you can tell where we're headed. Uh, we will see another miraculous event, to be sure. But it is a bit different. This is a specifically private event this time. Not in front of crowds, but in front of his disciples. It's not one of the uh, events that John, the gospel writer, names as one of his signs. We've mentioned several times that uh, John's gospel really features and goes through a number of signs that he holds out and calls as such uh, that he's giving so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, this is not one of those events that he names as a sign in that way. Uh, much of his gospel tells us about Jesus' public ministry uh, as it's giving us those signs. Again, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But at other places in the gospel, and this is one of those, he's also leading us to that conclusion about who Christ is by telling us about how he himself, John, and the other apostles came to believe. How they came to see who Christ is and put their trust in him as a result. We'll move through the end of verse 25 this morning, and there are three moments that we're going to encounter. Let me give these to you before we read uh, the first that we'll see, we could call the disciples' plight. That will be verses 16 to 19, the disciples' plight. Secondly, we'll see the disciples' rescue in verses 19 to 21. And then third, the, the focus will shift to the crowd, and we'll see the crowd's confusion in verses 22 to 25. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles... 
they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Three pieces to the events that we're walking through. As we come to verse 16, John is very quick to enter into this description of the situation, uh, the struggle, the plight of the disciples. And if we were to take what we find in verses 16 to 19 here, the description, and hold it up against what we see in Matthew and Mark, we'd find that in these verses in particular, John's account is relatively compressed. It gives us some fewer details. He chooses not to include a number of details about the aftermath of the miracle with the bread and the fish, other than what he has just said in verse 15. Instead, what John seems to do is to choose what he includes in such a way that his readers gain the perspective that the disciples had themselves. Many of the details that the other Gospels contain that he doesn't hear are details of Jesus' experience back on the land after they had left him. So Matthew and Mark both tell us that after they left, Jesus dismissed the crowds. After that, he went up on the mountain to pray by himself. They also tell us that Jesus sees them from there as they're trying to cross the lake and are unable to because of the winds. So that it's that sight that is what leads him to come to them. We learn this in those Gospels, but that's not what we find here. Look again at verse 16. What we find in John's Gospel is this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. We don't have our attention split between what was happening with Jesus and what was happening in the meantime with the disciples. We are with the disciples here. They are in a boat. It is now dark, and Jesus hasn't come to them. As some suggest, because of how verse 17 is written there, that what happened is that Jesus bid them go to the boat and wait on the shore or row um, alongside the shore until a certain time in case he might join them, but bidding them to go ahead and cross over if he was not there by a certain time. So that they're waiting to begin their journey across to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee until it's gotten dark at this point. And that's what's happened. He's not present with them. And it's dark, and they're in the middle of the lake. Now, as we come to the events of the miracle itself, though, we need to add what's happening in verse 18. Look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, 
And we'll stop there for a moment. This is not a rainstorm that is being described to us here. This is a windstorm. It's a very common storm happening in that area, especially over that body of water. still happens today because of the topography there. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level, and there are some high areas around it as well. And so what happens is that cooler winds sweep in and mix with the warmer uh, air of the, uh, of the lake there. That Sea of Galilee is a lake. And they churn up the waters. This happens violently and it happens suddenly and it's not raining as that happens. This is a disturbance that's happening because of strong winds. And that's why experienced fishermen can get caught up in these things because they're not things that you can see coming. There aren't signs of them like clouds or different colors of the sky. This is something that you cannot anticipate. And the picture that we get is that the disciples are rowing here far, far longer than they had planned to be. Verse 18, what we read, estimates the length that they had rowed at three or four miles. Uh, The length that John names is uh, a unit of measurement. We don't use 25 to 30 stadia. Uh, It's probably something like three and a half miles. And given that they're passing from the northeast to the northwest uh, part of the lake, not at all the widest part of the lake, Uh, the full distance that they needed to go could not have been much more than that. People estimate what they probably were trying to do at something like a four-mile crossing. So they've rowed enough. They've gone very near the amount of distance they would need to get there. And yet, by the middle of the night, Mark tells us about 3 o'clock in the morning, they still have not made it. They left when it got dark, and it's 3 a.m., And they've not made it. They've been rowing the entire time. And given how far they had gone, it seems like what happened is that they had slowly worked their way across and gotten close, only to have the winds kick up even further and begin to push them back out toward the middle of the lake. Matthew and Mark tell us that John looks out from the mountain and sees them out there being pushed back by the waves. This is not a good situation for them to be in. It is pitch dark, and they are uncertain about how this is going to go. Now, this, w- this may sound a bit unsympathetic of me, but I would leave them out there for just a moment here, uh, struggling like they're struggling. But freeze frame that in your mind for just a few minutes. Maybe you can use a, a visual moment there. The New American Standard translates Mark's account by saying that they were straining against the oars. So freeze them there for a minute, straining against the oars at 3 o'clock in the morning. And let's think about what we have seen recently about Jesus in this account, uh, this gospel. What did we just see of him last week? When the need arose for food. You remember verses... Five and six of this chapter, he asks uh, where we can buy bread to feed this group. And verse six told us he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Do you think we see something less than that happening here? As Jesus has bid them go and cross over at night? Did Jesus know what he was sending them into? 
as he sent them away. What would you say the answer to that is? If we've been following the account in John's Gospel, there is no question as to what Jesus knows and as to the control that he has over the situations that he is walking through and that his disciples are going through. He knows. So what that means then is that we are not wrong to look at this and to be seeing a picture of what it looks like for Jesus to teach his disciples. It's what he's doing. And he is teaching them so many things on this night. He's teaching them that being his disciple will mean being put into places and times of hardship. It it will mean going through places and times and situations that tempt us toward a kind of hopelessness. I've been rowing and rowing and rowing, and I'm actually going backwards. Does that not describe times and seasons that you have gone through? No doubt there are people among us here right now for whom that is the season that they're in. What does he teach us about those seasons here as he sends his disciples through this experience? Those are not things that ought to be surprising. Do not be surprised by them. Know that they are part of life in this world as his disciple. And know the promises of God that none of them are going to last forever. He's teaching them those things. He's teaching them that he is still and always their hope and safety. It will only be when they see him and when they hear his voice that their fear will be comforted. He's teaching them that they're going to have to become accustomed to missing his physical presence. That he will not always be there with them, his voice in their ear. He's teaching them a great number of things. So that's important for us to notice as they're freeze-framed, straining against the oars. Now we can unfreeze them at this point uh, and continue on here. In the second half of verse 19, what we begin to see now is that Jesus arrives on the scene. He has seen them. He comes to them. And as they're straining against the oars, as the waves are pushing them back, they see Jesus walking toward them. And we can most certainly see in what transpires here and in the way he reveals himself to them, that he is teaching them even there. They are continuing to learn something. Jesus is teaching them about his power and his trustworthiness, to be sure. But he is also providing something of an explanation for why they can rely on him. So as we come to verse 19, we're thinking about the disciples' rescue and what Jesus is teaching them about the reason that he is so reliable and so worthy of their trust. Look again at verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, this is a miraculous event, but it's more than that. What I mean is Jesus is again demonstrating here, as we have seen him a number of times now, in his physical existence, that God is walking around in human flesh. There's a man walking around doing the works of God. 
Who is it who walks on the sea? Who does that? Isaiah 43, 16, we read this morning, Dennis led us, Thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Psalm 77, let me read this to you, it's just three verses, beginning in verse um, 17, I may have written that down wrong, I think it's verse 17 of Psalm 77. Listen to this description. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth shook and trembled. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. This is a description we find of God in the Old Testament. But perhaps most of all, most clearly of all, we find in Job chapter 9, verse 8. A simple statement about God where Job writes that God is he who trampled the waves of the sea. Now we're going to fixate on that for a moment because there's something happening here in what Job has written and in the tradition that comes from it. Uh, we read that in the English Standard Version. God trampled the waves of the sea. It's worded differently in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And we need to do a little bit of an aside here. Uh, what's going on is the, the Bibles that we're holding in our hands, our English Bibles, are in the Old Testament translated over from the Hebrew Old Testament. It was originally written in Hebrew. We translate over from Hebrew to English, as it should be. And we use our English translation. In Jesus' day, they were using a translation of the Old Testament as well. They were using what's called the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. Far and away, that's the version of the Old Testament that they're reading, that they're studying, that they're memorizing, that they're quoting. And the reason we can tell that is that there are are many places where the Greek translation of the Old Testament has some noticeable differences from the original Hebrew Old Testament. And when the New Testament authors quote those passages, they quote from the Greek translation. You see how we can tell what they have in their mind, what, what scripture they have memorized, what comes to them when they're quoting the Old Testament. It's the wording from the Greek Old Testament. Now I say all of that because Job 9.8 is one of those places where there is a difference. The original, what was written in Hebrew, says what I just read to you. God is he who trampled the waves of the sea. But when they translated that into the Greek Old Testament, they worded it this way. God is he who walks on the sea as on firm ground. That's how they translated it. And when John recounts Jesus' action here, he uses the very same wording that we find there in Job 9.8 when he writes that Jesus was walking on the sea. I mean, walking on it, as on dry ground. Now, what do we hear from passages like those three that I just gave you from the Old Testament? Here's what we hear. God is the one who walks on the seas, as on firm ground. 
And they look up on that night, and they see Jesus Christ of Nazareth walking along the sea, coming toward them. This is why I say that the disciples are learning here about why they can rely on Jesus. Why is it that he is the one worthy of their utter and complete trust in all things? In verses 20 and 21, he calms their great fear, and he gets in the boat. And it's left out here, but Mark tells us that when he entered the boat, the wind ceases. And Mark says that these things leave the disciples utterly astounded. He uses a very rare word there to describe their mental state as this is all going on. It's a word that conveys a kind of undoing, a mental undoing. I have no idea what in the world just happened. This kind of a state. It's pretty understandable. Mark uses that word again in chapter 3 of his gospel, where Jesus' family goes out and tries to seize Jesus. Because it says, they were saying, he is out of his mind. (laughs) That's the word that is used here to describe these disciples as this man walks to them and climbs into the boat. And the reason for their astonishment, according to Mark, is that they had not understood about the loaves. We mentioned this last week. They had not understood as they watched this happening. They they perceived that a miracle was taking place, but they had not understood what they were supposed to have understood. They had not understood about who this means that Jesus is. But when they get this display, and when Jesus continues to teach them patiently, to lead them, to reveal himself to them, before John's gospel is finished, one of these disciples will say to Jesus, my Lord and my God, in John chapter 20. This is where they will be when he is finished with them. But they're still learning here. The rescue actually begins when they recognize his voice. When he says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. You see, verse 21 tells us they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now the question here is, did John just describe a second miracle to us? This is the way that he words it is very hard to know. Uh, at this point in the other Gospels, what's emphasized is that the wind immediately ceases. The, what's been keeping them from reaching the shore is immediately removed. Is that what he's meaning here? Is he saying that the wind died down suddenly so that they arrived right away? Or does it mean that as soon as he got into the boat, they were at their destination? It's very possible in the way that he words this, that has been suggested as what happened here in interpreting this as far back as the church father origin in the third century, that that's in fact what took place. Either way, the fact of the matter is that in a situation in which they had no power to resist, and in this trial that rendered them helpless, not only did... Not only did Jesus know the entire time, 
but he was, <clears throat> he was in control the whole time, and it did not last for one second longer than he allowed it to. Now, let me see if I can repeat those three. I had a hard time the first time. Let me repeat these three. We need to think about this as we're hearing what took place that day. Not only did Jesus know the whole time, but he, <clears throat> but he was in control the whole time, and it didn't last for one second longer than he allowed it to. Have you found in your trials in life, there are so many, just imagine in a room this size, the kind and the variety and the depth of trials that are represented in this room. Have, have you perceived yet the importance of understanding all three of those things? I have heard our Lord spoken of at times in ways that are trying to bring comfort but I'm not sure that comfort is what really comes in some of the ways that he can be described. Often what happens, and this is, we all do this <laughs> in, in the best of intentions, often he can be described sometimes in ways that emphasize some true things without emphasizing the entire picture of who Christ is. Maybe emphasizing things, true things, like the fact that he sees your suffering. He cares about your suffering. He would weep with you as you weep in your suffering. That he knows what it feels like to suffer, and so he sympathizes with us in our suffering. These things are true, deeply true. Jesus saw these disciples struggling and cared, and he went to them. Hebrews 4.15 assures us that he... He is our sympathetic high priest. But as true as those things are, they're insufficient for us if they don't take into account the fact that Jesus is the sovereign king over your suffering. He ordains it. He works by it. And he limits it. He says to it, thus far and no farther. He sustains through it. He comforts after it by his Holy Spirit. And what's more, he has promised us and given us a guarantee that he's left here to prepare a place for us, a place that all the trials he might have brought to us in our lives will not be worthy to be compared with. This is who Christ is. But for now, we, what do we do every day? We walk through our lives, the ups and the downs. And in all things, we seek to walk by faith in the Son of God, who loves us and gave himself for us. And this man that we see on display in this account, this man who came to them walking on the top of the water, the man who is obeyed by wind and seas, this is the one that God has promised for our rescue. 
And it's on that basis that I can be acting as a rational person when I argue back at my fears. I'm not being irrational. I'm not being naive. I can choose, in in a world like this, I can choose peace and trust and hope, genuine, joyful hope. And I can do it because in the words of 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is who he is. The choice of peace and hope for the believer is an utterly reasonable one in light of the identity of our rescuer. Now we move toward closing this morning by taking note, shifting our focus away from the disciples and to the crowd. We'll stay with us long enough to hear the confusion of the crowd. And we do this for its own reasons this morning, but also to set us up for what is going to come here in the weeks forward. Look now at verse 22. I'll read verses 22 to 25 again. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They had waited on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee because they knew, they saw the disciples go to the boat. They knew that he had not left with them in the boat. And already by nightfall, you can sense more of their excitement because word had already gotten to the cities around them about the miracle of the feeding so that even more had come. Through their searching, when he leaves them and goes up to the mountain, and then when he, by the darkness of night, goes out onto the waters, they come to realize that he's not there when morning dawns. And so they go, the only place they know to go, they go after his disciples. They know where they were going. They go after the disciples and they come to Capernaum, and when they get there, they find Jesus there with them. Verse 59 of this chapter will tell us that they find him in the synagogue there in Capernaum. He's teaching that morning. And they don't understand how he got there so quickly. They ask him this question in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you come here? This is the first of what's going to be five simple things they will say to him in this interaction. And in a single conversation, where Jesus says things they do not immediately understand or sympathize with, in a single conversation, they will grumble and they will walk away. 24 hours ago, they saw what we saw last week. And in one conversation, where he says things they do not sympathize with or understand, they will be gone. My friends, think about that. And remember the place where they were in their emotions 24 hours before, ready to rebel against Rome itself 
in the name of this man to completely walking away from him. I would say to you, this is the best parable we need of the, um, the sower and the soils. Do you remember that parable that Jesus told? This is a picture of that, live and in action. In other words, this is what false belief looks like. We saw a number of weeks ago about the nature of false belief, that it is described in Scripture as a type of belief, but it's a false belief. Here is what it looks like. It will rejoice and shout in agreement when things are going as expected or as desired. And such is false belief that it's actually possible that a human being can praise Jesus' power and his wisdom and can make great promises based on his confidence in Christ and then hear one thing from him that he doesn't like and say, who can listen to this? Who can agree with this? Who can accept this? And in light of the fact that the day before they were ready to rally around him as their king, my friends, this should make us all very, very skeptical this morning of our own emotional reactions. And in another way, of our words our words, our bare words. Think of the words they shouted 24 hours ago. Oh, words are important. We are commanded to publicly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no question about that. What I mean is that it should terrify us to see here, in this and in what is to come, just how easy it is to say something. This is John chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus will ask, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man built on a house, a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. Immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. And so what have we been shown this morning? Our Lord has been so kind as to remind us this morning of two things in particular. One is the reminder that he is the one who reigns over our trials. He reigns over their circumstances, their lengths, and their outcomes. And he is the one who draws near to us in the storm and says, it is I, do not be afraid. We've been reminded as well this morning, that if that's true, if he is such a one as that, well, we've been reminded of the utter insanity of coming to his teaching and thinking ourselves to have a wisdom that could question it or critique it. And you know, it does us no good to say that about his teaching in general. 
It is true about each and every word that he would speak to us, isn't it? God has made me a man, an adult, a husband, a father, a pastor, a U.S. citizen. We could go on. And in each and every one of those spheres, God has told me what is good and what's right in his sight. He has told me. I don't have to wonder. And when I receive it from his word, I will not question or critique it. He has told me. And he is the one who tramples down the seas. We simply must be working to strengthen our own character and to strengthen the character of each other so that we do not praise Jesus' greatness all the way until we bump up against a teaching of his that we don't care for or understand. We are the one who bends in those moments. As Peter will say at the end of this very chapter, Lord, where else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have shown us this morning. about yourself, about your kind and mighty and perfect guiding of our lives. And we do ask you, together as a family here, Father, we ask you to draw near to us, and especially to those of our number who are suffering. Lord, we ask you to give sustained comfort and assurance that you're near. We pray again, Father, for our brother and sister, for the newcomers. We pray for healing and patience for them in these days to come. And that their trust in you would only increase as a result of what you have brought. For us all, Lord, give us a great awareness of the profound failure that we've seen on display in John 6 and that we will see in the weeks to come. That men could see such sights from you and still, still stand in judgment over the words of the one who tramples the waves of the sea. Help us, Father, to see the great offense of that sin so that we might be protected from the same temptation in ourselves. We lay these things before your great and merciful throne of grace today, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank God for his word and for his great generosity.